Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Jackman Radio. I am your co-host, Mike Jackman, and I'm very excited. Tonight, I am joined by uh, journalist, author, and the uh, author of the book, Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, uh, Mr. Joe Milliken. How you doing, Joe? Mike, uh, having a good day. It's great to see you. I'm glad we can finally hook up and uh, have this little conversation about my book. I really appreciate you having me as a guest. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming on. I know we, we've kind of been talking about it it's probably since late last year. And um, obviously, things have been crazy with, you know, COVID. And um, like, I want to thank you again for for sending me out a book, too, so I could read the book. I really appreciate that. So I was oh, really absolutely, man. You know, it's like one hand washes the other, right? If you're going to give me a little PR and allow me to be a guest on your show. The least I can do is send you a book so you can, uh, you know, read it, check it out and, uh, you know, prepare yourself a little bit for our interview. So it was my yeah, pleasure. Absolutely. And I, I got to say, like I told you in some of our chats, I learned so much about, um, you know, not only the cars, but just Benjamin Orr. It, it kind of feels like, um, you know, Rick Ocasek is really the guy you see a lot in the music videos, you know, the, the, I guess you could call him the co-lead singer and, and the rhythm guitarist for the cars. Um, and really the fellow who wrote, you know, most of their music, right. Most of the songs. Yeah, you know, Rick is essentially considered the front man to the band. Um, and, you know, he is, some, a lot of times I say, um, mistakenly say that he's the main songwriter of the band. And technically that's not true because he pretty much is the only songwriter of the band. He wrote all of their lyrics. Oh, now, wow. um, yeah, now don't get me wrong. You know, when they would get ready to record and go into the studio to start working on an album, you know, the other guys in the band were able to contribute ideas and, you know, they all put their ideas into the pot, if you will, when they started to record songs. But as far as, and, you know, working on melodies and that kind of thing. But as far as the lyrics go, Rick wrote them all. So he is the songwriter of the band. And, you know, big, tall, lanky, kind of weird looking guy. Um, so he kind of generally is known as um, the, the leader of the band or the front man of the band, if you will. Um, and, you know, so Ben's kind of in the background a little bit till he gets out in front of that mic and sings the lead vocal on a song. And then you know who Ben is. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. And we can get to, you know, their 1984 album, uh, you know, Heart, Heart, uh, Heartbeat City later. And of course, my I think I told you my favorite song is Drive, which, um, uh, you know, Ben sings lead on and the music video is, is very unforgettable and, and uh, just haunting, beautiful song. But, um, you know, before we do that, I want to go back into, um, you know, his background. Um, you know, his re his his real last name is not or it's something that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Would you be able to share <laughs> with us what his actual actual birth last name was yeah ben is um of polish descent so his last name is orzachowski okay orzachowski so you can Thank probably you. understand why it was probably a good idea to cut it down to or especially oh. if you're going to be you know a celebrity or what or what have you, you know so or is a lot easier to remember but yeah orzachowski 11 letters <laughs> like, yeah uh, ben ben benny 11 finger uh, benny 11 letters was ben, benny 11 letters yeah um when he was um you know i know we'll get into um the beginnings of his life as we go along here but um ben you know ben was in bands and wanted to be a musician his whole life i mean that was his plan from the get-go um you know everybody knows him as a bass player in the cars but he actually started out as a drummer um, he was a drummer first and he got his first drum kit when he was like 11 years old 
and he was taking drum lessons. He was in his first band when he was 13, and he was a drummer. So he was a drummer, and then he became a guitar player. And so he wasn't even a bass player until later on when uh, the cars needed a bass player. So he was a multi-instrumentalist, and he kind of he kind of conformed his talents to whatever his band needed at the time. Um, so growing up in Cleveland, and you're in these bands with people, um, it, as you just <laughs> you just said, it's kind of hard to remember and pronounce Orzachowski. Um, so his friends and bandmates used to call him Benny Eleven Letters. Yeah, <laughs> so he was kind of known. That was his nickname when he was young. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's cool. That's that's awesome. I mean, I, I'm a drummer, and I I really don't play any other instruments. So I I that's how I started. My uh, my parents bought my brother a drum set for Christmas one year, and he didn't really take to it. And I just started playing. And um, Eric, my brother, ended up just getting into guitar. So that's kind of how I became a drummer. You know, I got a drum set when I was like I don't know, twelve or thirteen or something like that. And well, you guys, you guys sound like the Van Halen brothers. Oh, a little because bit. Yeah. Well, Eddie Van Eddie Van Halen got the drum kit first and then Alex took over and Eddie realized that Alex was a better drummer than he was ever going to be and then Eddie switched to guitar. I no guess kidding. they made the I guess they made the right move, huh? And the rest is history. Yeah, and may he may <laughs> he rest in peace by the way too. That's that yeah. was that was sad. That I mean he was I think he was only 65 or something like that or Yeah, man, he, that's a tough one right there. Yeah. That is a tough one. An another rest in peace, Eddie. Another legend that's gone too soon, just like just like, you know, Benjamin Orr. And uh, yeah. I think it's great, too, that you wrote this book about, um, you know, Benjamin Orr, because uh, as far as I know, there's no other book specifically about him. It's the first one that's come down, you know, down the pipe. And um, you, you spent 11 years working on this project. Believe it or not, I spent over a decade writing this book. And, you know, there's various reasons for it. Now, of course, I don't want to. Um, I don't want anyone to think that, you know, I sat in my office for eight hours a day, you know, every week for 10 straight years writing this book. It was a spare time kind of thing. You know, I'm a freelance writer and a music journalist, so I write for a couple other publications. I mean, I've got a whole other separate full-time job. Um, you know, and of course, I'm married and I have a family. So, you know, it was, it was, I would just work on it in my spare time on the side. But yes, it did take me a decade to put this together. And um, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, one of them is, you know, because um, Ben was already passed away, uh, Ben passed away in 2000 from pancreatic cancer. And I didn't start this book until like seven or eight years after he had already passed. So when I chose to write about Ben, um, and if you can't interview the man himself because he's already gone what's the next bit what's the next best thing to do and that is to try and find and interview as many people as you can who did know him so that's what I tried to do I tried to get a hold of as many people as I could in New Ben spanning throughout his life and that's what I did um, <clears throat> to tell you a little bit about you know I've had people ask me you know why did you write specifically about Ben um, I've had people say, well, you know, oh, why not write about the band as a whole? You know, why not write a Cars book? Or if you were going to choose an individual to write about the band, why not Rick? Because as we just said, he was more out front and he was pretty much the leader or front man of the band. <clears throat> and I chose Ben. It actually, 
it happened by happenstance. It, 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 it wasn't anything that I planned. Um, now, so we're talking a ways back here. I don't know if you remember the original um, social media MySpace. Oh, yeah, I was on there. I <laughs> you was, had a MySpace page? I did, yeah. It was actually pretty good for music, I got to say. <laughs> it was. It was definitely a better vehicle for music than I think Facebook is. You're right. Um, so going back that far, I had a MySpace page. And, you know, I did it for my writing. I listed that I was a music journalism, a rock and roll fan. Um, I listed that I was originally from Boston and that's where the cars broke out. I listed the cars as one of my favorite bands. And one day out of the blue, a fan of Benjamin and the cars contacted me and said, out of the blue, I think you should write a book about Ben. So I came back to her and asked her the questions that I just said to you. I'm like, well, why would I write about Ben? Why not write about the cars or why not write about Rick if I was going to pick an individual in the band? And she just said, do me a favor, investigate Ben and see what you think. So that's what I did. I investigated Ben and I started finding out all these cool things about him that I had no idea about. The first being that he was originally from Cleveland, the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. So I thought that was cool right off the bat that he was from Cleveland. And I started investigating him and I learned the things that I just told you before at the beginning of this interview that um, he started out as a musician at a very early age and it's all he ever wanted to do in his life. It was the only plan he had is I wanna be a professional musician and be in a, nationally, a national band. Um, and he actually quit high school as a sophomore um, because he wanted to pursue his professional career. So I thought that was interesting. Here's this kid who knew, I mean, geez, I was in my thirties and didn't know what the heck I wanted to do yet. And here's this 13 year old kid who already knows what he wants to do. And then to actually pursue it and make it happen. And then all of a sudden you're a rock and roll hall of famer at the end, which is in your hometown. So really the things that I learned about Ben as an early guy in his life, those are the things that hooked me and wanted me to write. It wasn't even anything to do with the cars. It was all these things I learned about him in his early life is what hooked me and just made me think, wow, I got to tell this guy's story. I asked a couple of friends who were cars fans and said, do you know any of these things about him? Some of them didn't even know who Ben was. Yeah, I'm a cars fan. Well, what, is, what, uh, what instrument does he play? Some of them didn't even know that he sang some of their songs. Right. Um, so nobody I talked to knew any of these other things about him. And that's when I kind of realized that, you know, I got to do this. I got to write this guy's story. And that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. And it's it's that's cool. And it really is quite a story. I mean, um, what really struck me, too, was just just how hard this guy worked to 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 get to get at this level, then get to the next level. And then, and then, you know, from a regional band to become, you know, uh, you know, big in the state and then on from there. And, and, um, and what I really loved about the story too, was that he, um, he would keep in touch with, with friends from when he was young and people who worked with them. And, and maybe there were stretches of time where they didn't speak, but 
it's everyone is just fond memories. They had good things to say about them. And like the one that really struck me was it was an early uh, roadie and guy that helped the band. I, I forget his name, but um, I guess Ben hadn't spoken to him for like 15 years. And then he ended up giving him he got him comps when the cars were in town and they had met up and, and, and got together again. And it was like old time. So it, it, he strikes yeah. me like he never forgot his roots or where he came from um, and that he was just he's just the same person. But he's also this this otherworldly rock star. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, it's really weird because everybody I interviewed, so I interviewed people throughout his whole life. I interviewed people that knew him when he was a kid and who went to middle school and high school with him um, when he was in his early bands before he even met Rick Ocasek and started the Cars. I interviewed, obviously, people after he became a rock star. I interviewed people later in his life after the Cars broke up. And I found this common thread throughout all these interviews I did. And it didn't matter if it was somebody who knew Ben when, he, when they were 13 years old or if it was somebody who knew Ben towards the end of his life when he was 50 years old. It was all this common thread of this down-to-earth guy who you know, wasn't necessarily um, into the spotlight. He liked to remain in the background. Um, and he was very loyal. And like you said, he never forgot where he came from. So I was talking about how, you know, the process of writing this book and why it took so long for me to do it. So I started interviewing these people. And as I just described, Ben was a very private guy. And as I interviewed these people, you know, here's this Joe Milliken from, you know, some hole in the wall writer from Vermont. And none of these people know who is this guy contacted me wanting to know about Ben. They knew that Ben was a private guy because they knew him personally. So they were very tentative at first and they were very protective of him and his legacy. Very few of these people I interviewed, as soon as I asked them, they said, oh, sure. What do you want to know? It was not like that at all. They were like, well, who are you? And why are you writing about Ben? And, and what are you going to say about Ben? So a lot of these people that ended up being, the book, being in the book, I had to like gain their trust before they would even talk to me about Ben. So that kind of added to the process. I mean, I did a lot of phone interviews, but I did a lot of interviews through email with people, people from Boston, people from Cleveland. And um, I have to say the, the interview process was painstaking at times, to say the least. Like to give you just a quick idea of how some of them would go, I'd contact somebody, tell them who I was and what I was trying to do. When I would get them to agree, I would email them some questions. You know, it might take them a few days or a week or however long it took for them to respond. They would send it back to me, the, the, the responses. I would work it out how I was going to um, put their interviews into the manuscript. And then they wouldn't sign off on it or agree to be in the book unless they saw exactly what I was putting in the book. So I would create the excerpt if you will, of the manuscript that they were a part of. And I would send that back to them in the email and they would look at it and they'd go, oh, we'll change this, add this, take this out. Did I really say that? I don't want to say that. And they would make changes and we would go back and forth and tweak whatever they were saying wow. until it was exactly the way they wanted it. And then I would insert it in the manuscript. So I literally did this for years with people. I mean, I had interviews that took six months to do. 
you know, right, going just... back and forth and back and forth. And you'd send a response to somebody and, you know, they're busy in their lives too. So it might be a week or two before they get back to you. I would have like a dozen interviews going on all at once with different people. So whenever somebody sent me an email back on that day, I would work on that. And then the next day I'd get something from someone else. And I just kept doing this. And that is a big reason why it took so long because I ended up interviewing over 120 people for this book. That's insane. And I tell you what, it could have been a lot more. You have no idea how many people a rock star knows. <laughs> oh yeah. Or com yeah. Or comes oh into contact God, with. Yeah. And you know what? Everybody I talked to, they would say, well, Hey, by the way, did you talk to so-and-so? And I'd go, no, who's that? You haven't talked to so-and-so. Oh man, they love Ben and they did this and that with Ben. Here, I'll get a hold of them for you and you can interview them. And almost everybody I talked to gave me one or two or three other people I could talk to. And it just went from there and took off and went on and on. When I first started this project, I was worried that I might not be able to collect enough information about Ben, you know? Right. Um, boy, <laughs> you, was I wrong. You probably I had to cut been, things out. I did. I could. This book could have been War and Peace, I tell you. It could have been a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. So well, the, interview the interview process had a lot to do with why it took so long. Um, oh. to get everything put together. I, I believe that. And and what really comes through also in the book, I mean, I've read a lot of, um, you know, great books about rock and roll stars and and uh, and even autobiographies. And certainly they like to include sometimes some very salacious information. And it doesn't seem like that's the route that you were trying to go. You would you would kind of, you would infer a little bit of, of course, Ben enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle and that sometimes it can include uh, some, some alcohol and, and having some fun with some people. But you didn't go into the salacious really, um, like dirt. And I, I really like that about this book because it, that's that to me, that seems the spirit that you were, that, that's where you were coming from with this. You were, you're trying to tell his story and you weren't going to, you didn't want to get, you didn't want to get into that type of thing. And it, it wouldn't even really serve the story really truthfully. Yeah. I'm really glad you said something along those lines because, um, you know, if I had decided to make this book, um, you know, a, how would I say a Motley Crue type story, <laughs> a tell all, a tell all backstage bullshit, all yeah. the dirt about somebody. Yeah. If I had, if I had decided to go that route, I bet you three quarters of the people that I interviewed would have said, no, they did. They would have said, no, that was why I was talking about how these people really wanted to get to know me. They wanted to know exactly what my intentions were. And I told them all from the beginning, this is not a rock and roll tell-all. I want this to be a respectful biography about a hardworking musician who had one goal in his life, and that was to make a living as a musician and make music for people. And that is what I told people from the get-go. And that is really how I got a lot of these people to participate because they ended up trusting me and knowing that I wasn't trying to learn you know, all the personal things about Ben, because he was a real private guy. And if he was still alive, I think that I like to believe that he would appreciate that about this book. There's certain things that, you know, you just don't need to know about people. Right. And, and that's the approach I took. I wanted it to be a respectful documentary. And I also, I kept his friends and his family. Um, ben has one son also in his life. 
I kept his son in the back of my mind all the time thinking his son's going to read this or his widow. And, and, he, and he didn't really get to know his dad. Um, his son's name is also Ben. He's not technically a junior, but his name is Benjamin. He was only five years, six years old when his dad, when he lost his dad. Wow. Um, so I really wanted to keep that in mind too. I didn't want him to read stuff that really didn't matter. It would have, it might have painted a different light on his dad. You know what I mean? So I, I tried to keep these people in the back of my mind as I did this. Um, and I really wanted to maintain a certain level of respectability when I put this together. And I think that really helped a lot in getting a lot of people to open up to me. Oh yeah, totally. And, 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 and that, you know, that was respectful, but at the same time, you, you, you were also saying, you know, this guy's a human being, he has his faults and he's fallible like the rest of us. And, um, you know, you, you were, you were like, just pretty, you were balanced about it. I mean, you, it wasn't like just a total hero worship thing, but it also wasn't, uh, like trying to, you know, uh, go into his more personal stuff that just wasn't necessary for the story. And I'm sure that's probably how you're able to secure um, uh, Robinson and Hawks, right? They were the, the two surviving members who did because Elliot Easton and Ocasek, you, you weren't able to talk to them, right? That's correct. Two out of the four surviving members um, did interview with me for the book. And yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't want it to come off as a fairy tale either. I didn't want it to be all, you know, sunshine and rainbows and you know because everybody go every, we all have demons we all have things that happen in our lives and you know i was by no means was trying to you know pull ben off as some perfect human being you know right so i did indulge a little bit here and there in, in a little bit of his private life and you know the way his lifestyle was i mean come on he was a millionaire rock star you know what i mean i mean the western I mean, years the western years sounded <laughs> extravagant having a house in western mass that's one of the wealthiest towns in Weston. My, my, I got family in Natick and I mean, Bobby Orr used to, lives in Weston as far as I know. And it, yep. yeah, so that must've been quite a scene uh, when he, when he, when he got his house in Weston and uh, yeah, it, it, it comes through that then, uh, you know, certainly recognized the position that he got to and he enjoyed it as he should have. Um, but another thing too, I really liked about, you know, his story is that if he was on the cusp of a record deal or on the cusp of, of a big gig or something fell through, he didn't totally quit. He might stop for a little while or be a little down about it, but he just kept going and kept working. And, um, you know, talk about some of those, uh, some of the early bands and the Cleveland scene when he would appear on, uh, you know, music shows that were being broadcast, you know, maybe regionally or throughout the country. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about um, how his early life is what really hooked me and wanted me to tell his story because it was very unique. Um, so like I said at the beginning, here's this kid who quit school when he was a sophomore. And, you know, we're talking here back in the mid-50s. I mean, if, you, if, if somebody says that today, I mean, that's like taboo. A kid quit school. I mean, that's, that would go right to the state and that would be shut off. You know well, he got I mean? his parents' blessing, right? I mean, he, he, he had did. To, yeah. Yep. So back yeah. in the 50s, it was a little more different. I mean, there were a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were cases where people had to quit school. I mean, to go work, to make money for their families. I mean, things were a little bit different back in the 50s. But yes, his parents gave him full support. It wasn't like, you know, he said, ah, screw you. I'm, I'm quitting school. I don't care what you think. His parents knew that he had talent and they knew that this is what he wanted to do. And he was driven to be a rock star or be a professional musician. So they, they backed him up on it. So, that, I mean, they signed off and let him quit school. So here's this kid quitting, uh, quitting school. And um, one of his early bands was called the Grasshoppers. 
And he was the rhythm guitar player and the lead singer for this band. He's only 17 years old. And his band ends up being on this nationally syndicated television show that was based in Cleveland called Upbeat. And Upbeat was like uh, the Cleveland version of American Bandstand. Uh, the concept was the show would bring in national artists who, you know, have hot music going on or the big singles of the day, and they would sing their songs. But what made Upbeat a little different than American Bandstand is they also brought in bands from the Cleveland area to be house bands. So a national artist would sing their song, and then when they would segue in and out of commercials and things like that, they would have a house band that played music um, going in and out of commercials. So what the producer would do is he would go into the city of Cleveland and find local bands that were hot at the time and bring them in to be these house bands. So Ben's band, The Grasshoppers, which was one of the hottest bands in Cleveland at the time, they were brought in to be a house band. So I'm like, here's this 17-year-old kid who decides to quit school. And now his band is, I mean, because Upbeat was nationally syndicated. And at one point, it was in like 180 cities across the country. So it wasn't quite as big as American Bandstand, but it wasn't just, you know, a show in Cleveland. It was across the country. So this seventh, and this is like over a decade before the cars were even around. And as a matter of fact, Rick is quoted as saying that as a young guy, before he even met Ben, he remembers seeing the cars. I mean, the cars. He remembers seeing the grasshoppers on Upbeat and going, wow, man, who's this guy? And then when they met for the first time, he was like, you're Ben. You're in the grasshoppers. So Rick was kind of starstruck by Ben when he first met him because he saw him on TV. So, I mean, when you're 17 years old, man, and your plan is to be in rock and roll and you're on a nationally syndicated TV show, I mean, that's pretty cool. That's it, man. I mean, that is that is that is so cool. And and uh, I didn't realize, too, Rick and Ben, I think they maybe first met briefly in like 65 and then and then they formed they didn't even form their first band until like 68 or 69. Uh, ID Nirvana. Right. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Rick is originally from the Baltimore area. But when he was like uh, in high school, you know, his dad got a transfer in his job. So that's how he ended up in Ohio. I think he ended up in Columbus, which is near Cleveland. And uh, Ben and Rick didn't know each other right off, but they were in competing bands. You know, they're both of their bands played in the same area, played the same clubs and stuff. And uh, this, as the story goes, uh, they ended up meeting each other one night at a house party somewhere. They ended up down in the basement and there were some instruments sitting around and Ben picked up an acoustic guitar and sang a Beatles song to Rick. And Rick is quoted as saying that it was the most beautiful voice he had ever heard in his life. Wow. And right then and there, they both dropped whatever they were doing as far as music goes at the time and decided to form a partnership right then and there. And that's how they became a duo and uh, started the long road to stardom. And I tell you, it didn't come easy for them. Uh, they didn't get a you know a quick big break just like that. They toiled away on the road for a decade before yeah. they ended starving, before they ended up in Boston and got their record deal. It did not come easy to them. It took a long time. 
Yeah, that's wild because the cars didn't technically form until 76 and their first album didn't come out till uh, 78. So you're, you're talking a whole decade of being on the road and, and, and club gigs. And there's one story you got in there about them just barely making it, uh, I think, somewhere in a van uh, to a gig or I don't know if I, I might be mixing that up with something else. But but basically, you're talking just these like hand to mouth gigs, um, you know, uh, and then what, another thing I didn't know about the two of them when so Rick first went to Massachusetts and he was always trying to get Ben to follow. Right. And when Ben did go there, they were playing as acoustic duo in like coffee shops and Harvard Square and stuff. Yeah. So when they first got together, um, they formed a band and, you know, they. They started in the Ohio area. They went up into like, uh, they ended up in Michigan around East Lansing and things were go not going so good there. So then they said, well, you know what? New York City is where you want to be. Let's go to New York City and, and we'll get our record deal there. So they, they pulled all their money together and whoever had the best car that might get them there went all the way to New York City where they were there for a while. Then they ended up in upstate New York. Then they went back to Michigan and Ohio area. So doing all of this. And then that's finally when Rick decided that he wanted to go to Boston. Um, you know, he read something about it. He read that it was a hotbed of music. Um, it's a college town. So there's a lot of colleges and universities and a lot of places to play. Cafes and clubs. And, um, you know, the drinking age was 18 back then. So there were, the bars were packed every night of the week. So if you had a band, you know, if you were any good, you could get a gig somewhere. So that's what made Rick decide he wanted to go to Boston. But at the time, so this is around you know, 1970 or so, after they had already been together for a while and traveled all over trying to find a way to make it. Um, when Rick decided he wanted to go to Boston, Ben had decided that he wanted to take a break, not from music, but um, he had lost his dad at an early age. His dad passed away. So he wanted to stay in Cleveland with his mom, you know, just to make sure that she was going to be okay and make sure that she settled back in, you know, to her life. He didn't want to leave her at right off the bat. Right. So Ben, uh, so Rick went to Boston and he was there for a few months, but he kept calling Ben on the phone saying, Ben, you got to come to Boston. You got to come to Boston. So we always wanted, you know, he was starting to try to develop more songs and get a new band thing going but he always wanted ben there so then eventually ben when he realized you know knew that his mom was going to be okay then ben went to boston too and that's when they started uh you know the early formation of the cars which was a band called cat and swing and don't ask me where that name comes from yeah i have no idea and that's you know it's that... probably good that they ended up changing that name <laughs> yeah i think once the cars is yeah that, that's that ended up it just it was like a it's like a eureka moment once they settled yeah. on the cars and and it really but you're just right, they, you're right they did start out as an acoustic duo i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you yeah they did start out as an acoustic duo because now you're talking 1971 or so and that was big at the time you know more folky singer songwriter yeah crosby stills and nash you know that kind of vibe was big at the time so they thought maybe they could catch that fire and, you know, help them get a record deal. Didn't really work out. And that's when they decided to strip it down and go back and be a rock and roll band. And uh, that's when they formed Cat and Swing. It's interesting. If you go online and Google Cat and Swing, you can actually listen to some of their music, even though they didn't get a record deal yet. Uh, they were going into uh, recording studios and recording demos as Cat and Swing. 
So anybody out there who, you know, is curious about how that band sounded, you know, the pre-Cars band, you can actually go Google them and you can find some songs. Um, a couple of the songs ended up actually making it and transferring over to the Cars. But how I describe Captain Swing is um, they were a rock band, but they were, um, had a little bit of a more jazzier kind of side to them. It kind of, they kind of remind me of Steely Dan, if you will sort of like a Steely Dan meets the Cars kind of a vibe. Um, so even though it didn't sound like that Cars, like that stripped down, more velvet underground, new wave kind of sound that the Cars ended up being, if you hear Captain Swing, you can kind of see, like you can hear the Cars like bubbling up to the surface, just not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, so they did the Captain Swing for a while and Captain Swing actually played a pretty big part in the band getting a deal. Because back in those days, radio DJs had a lot more freedom than they do now. Like if you're a DJ at a radio station now, you got a sheet of paper in front of you and there's a format and you follow that format and you can't deviate from it. Well, back in the 70s, DJs could introduce other things that they liked. If they heard a band that they liked or saw a band in a club and they had a good enough demo or whatever, they could play these bands on the radio. And there's a famous DJ in Boston. She's retired now, of course, but her name was Maxanne Sartori. And she was um, a very influential DJ on one of the most influential FM stations in the country at the time, WBCN out of Boston. And of course, it's a bummer BCN's not around anymore either. Um, but she was also famous for helping Aerosmith get their first record deal. Um, Billy Squire, she helped Billy get his, so there were other bands that she had helped too. So she was in a club one night and she saw Captain Swing and she really liked them. So she talked to them after the show. The guys had already created a, an official demo in a recording studio and it sounded good. She started playing Captain Swing on the radio, on the FM radio station in Boston. So even though they didn't have a record deal, they started getting some radio play before they even became the Cars. And that sort of started building the momentum for them, you know, to get some momentum going and it eventually lead into the, led them to their record deal. Yeah. So, so the nucleus was there and, and um, I was reading too, I, I'm, I'm, I probably read this in your book, but also just in some other reading about the Cars, the, uh, a couple of the tracks from their, first, from their debut album from 1978, you know, eponymous, the Cars, um, Just What I Needed, and another one of the tracks, the, the, the version that appeared on the radio was the demo version. It wasn't even the, the final version. That, I, that's, that's, right. cra that's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. People went nuts I mean, it for it. it. It tells you they were, right, they were ready and they were on the right track, though. Um, you know, I think Captain Swing... I'm not sure if Captain Swing would have secured their record deal or not. You know, we'll never really know because they ended up stripping it down again. Um, but Rick, Rick was a big fan of, you know, Velvet Underground and Lou Reed, that kind of stripped down rock sound. And eventually that's what he wanted to do. And Captain Swing was, like I had mentioned, a little more jazzier, a little more complicated, a lot more notes involved. Right. And that's when he decided he wanted to strip it all down. Another interesting thing about Rick, he kind of approached things different than most bands do. Like if you, you usually like what usually happens, I would think is, you know, you get together with a bunch of friends that, that like the same kind of music as you and you form a band and start practicing and then you start writing songs. 
Well, Rick kind of took the opposite approach of that. He considered himself a songwriter first. So he would write a batch of songs and then go out and try to find musicians that he felt could fit into what he had written. So he kind of took a backwards approach to it. Um, so when he decided to chuck all the cat and swing songs out the window and write a whole new batch of songs, that's when he kind of stripped down the band along with it. So, um, of course, he kept Ben, who was in Cat and Swing, and he also kept Elliot Easton, who, who was in Cat and Swing for a while. Okay. Um, the, the other guys in the band, they kind of drifted away, and that's when he brought in some newer guys, including David Robinson, um, who was in a, a punk band at the time, um, and he knew them because they were both playing at the Boston Club, The Rat. Yeah, The Rat. <laughs> A famous club in Boston. So once he stripped down the Captain Swing songs, and you know what's weird is all those songs on that debut Cars album, you would think that Rick kind of would write those and collect them over time. He threw away all the Captain Swing songs. Like we said, one or two was able to still be included. He wrote all of those songs for that debut album at once, fresh. So like good times roll, uh, all mixed up, just like best friends, girl. All, those were all like, just what I needed. Moving in stereo, bye bye love. He wrote all of those songs in basically less than a six month period of time. After That's he crazy. had dumped, after he had dumped Captain Swing, the Captain Swing concept, and brought in a couple of new guys and said, "I'm stripping this down." You know, by that time, bands like the Talking Heads and Blondie and that more new wave rock kind of sound, those bands were now starting to be on the charts. And that's what he decided, I got to strip this down and I got to make it more a straight up stripped down rock sound. And he wrote all of those songs pretty much in one batch. Wow. Pretty, yeah, I mean, pretty amazing. <laughs> they're coming at that, coming at that time when punk was kind of starting to kind of have its exit, but new wave was coming in and post-punk and um, right just yeah i mean he just they just hit that perfect like that 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 small window that 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 oh. that really just catapulted them and you mentioned the rat um uh just some of those gigs sounded just like electric like that's where their technically where their debut was right as the cars was at the correct. rat and it was like that's a pack, packed house and then they just kept they would play it like paradise rock club right on um yep on Calm Ave. yep i got to interview uh the owner of the rat um, his name is Jimmy Harold, and he actually ended up being friends with Ben. I mean, even after the cars, you know, exploded onto the scene and started playing bigger venues and stuff, uh, the owner of the Rat and Ben remained friends after that. Um, so I got to interview him, and he tells me that, um, you know, there were a lot of cool bands playing the Rat at the time, but he said when the cars started playing there, he could tell that it was just a different kind of vibe in the air. And he knew that them guys weren't going to be playing at the Rat too long. No. That they were going to be catapulted into into superstardom, if you will. Um, yeah, so, that, yeah. That's wild. They, you know, getting, um, you know, at that point being at a smaller club, and um, I think U two, one of U two on the U uh, two's first American tour, their uh, one of their first shows was at the Paradise Rock Club in like nineteen eighty or eighty one. Yep, and, they also uh, played the Rat. You know, the uh, very first. Um, the very first American show by the police. Their first American show was at the Rat. No kidding. Wow. The list yeah. of bands that played in the Rat, 
the rat is sort of like the CBGBs of Boston. You know, it's really, it was really a little hole in the wall. It was not, it was not everything, anything extravagant. Talking Heads played there, Blondie, um, R.E.M., Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Cars. I mean, a lot of famous bands when they were first starting out and, okay, let's go to Boston. Where do we play first? The Rat was, you know, almost first on the list. So, yeah, the Rat was a pretty influential place for sure. And I, th I think the, the Rat closed and did it close in the 90s or it survived through through the 80s, right? Into the 90s or? It did survive through the 80s. I think, uh, not positive, but I think around 92 or 93, it and, finally and, closed down. And yeah, I mean, uh, my, my uncle Adrian is uh, grew up in the Boston scene and he, he was he was there for for the new wave scene. And, um, you know, he, he uh, I don't think he saw the Smiths, but, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen, who's one of my favorite bands. I've seen them several times. Um, and yeah, he would go to the Rat and he'd go to all these venues. And, and it seems like these venues are all gone pretty much, except for maybe Paradise, maybe uh, the Middle East. I don't know when the Middle East really came into prominence. Maybe it was a little bit later. But um, and, and yeah. especially now, since 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 COVID. The covid and that's decimated i mean i went to a show at um um uh it's a small place it's no it's no longer there uh, i'm trying to remember the name of it it was a it's a small place on uh it, I'll, I'll it'll it'll come back to me but the place is gone now covid just the the people couldn't keep up with rent and, and they did the fundraiser and you hear this story about so many clubs. So it's really, it's, it's kind of a bummer because this is really kind of a bygone era we're talking about. And, and even more so in the last year, I mean, just these small independent places are either being gobbled up by larger, um, you know, corporate musical entities, or they're just, they're just for the real estate purposes, just phased out of existence. So just so much history in these small clubs. I tell you, for years and years and years, I mean, I'm sure this is the same for you because you're, you know, you're so passionate about music, just like I am. Um, I wouldn't, I, I would, if, if I went more than a month without going to see a show somewhere, I mean, that's a long time. I haven't yeah. been to a live show in oh, almost a year and a half now. Yeah. I Man. mean, it's, it, it's not cool. <laughs> oh, Great Scott. The place, the venue was called Great Scott. Great Scott. Where is that? Yeah. Was that in that, Boston? It was in Boston. Yeah, it was a small venue. And um, I saw oh. this really great Australian uh, pop band called Hatchie that, that played there. And now the venue is no more. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you talk about these smaller bands that are up and coming that need to just get a shot or develop their audience or, or connect um, through a live tour. Um, it's just it's going forward. How do you do it now? Yeah, I don't even know. I, how, you know, the, the live coming band can somehow get enough momentum going to yeah. get a record deal or anything i it, just don't get it i don't think you could have a story like benjamin or in the cars anymore man i don't i don't i don't think that it, it's less and less for for something like this just you're talking about pure talent and 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 drive and uh um just the, just the determination to make it and um you know that i think that's what resonates with the cleveland fans and the boston fans and you know that he was he at the end of the day just a regular guy who always took care of his friends and family and um so so from the car from the debut which which i read went is since it's gone six times platinum just a mega debut for a band um what did it look like for the cars and ben after that album and going into their second and third album and, and touring and everything well you know even though um I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a rock fan and a fan of the cars, I mean, you realize 
how important and how how important of an album that is you know it's just iconic now i mean the band themselves have joked that that is their greatest hits album <laughs> right know? right yeah their and, first and, album <laughs> yeah and pretty much every song on it has is a staple on classic rock radio i mean i've heard every one of those songs on 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 classic rock radio you know oh, um, i still hear just what i needed almost every week at least once a week in the car no lie still to this oh, day yeah absolutely this day um, but you but you know it, it's weird because you know when that album first came out um they had to keep working because it didn't um it, it kind of it because they were a boston band for a while you know they had been a, they had been in the boston area for a few years building a little momentum before that first album came out so they, it actually took them a little time like it was when it first came out, it was like big in New England, but they hadn't really, you know, toured anywhere else yet. So they had to kind of start spreading it out and growing it from there. So the first eight months or so, um, although the album was doing okay and it, you know, it, it, it cracked the Billboard Top 200, it was almost a year before it really took off. So they started spreading it out, you know, along the East Coast. And then they eventually spread their tour, you know, going west. So it really did take them about a year or so um, for the album to really break out big nationally. And of course, once it did, you know, they, they just took off from there. And um, so I guess uh, the, the debut album was um, it was on the Billboard Top 200 for a little over two years. It remained in the top 200. I think it ended up, it cracked the top 20. I think it made it to about 18 or so. Um, they released three singles from the album. They all hit, they all cracked the top 40 on the hot, uh, what is it called? The hot 100 singles list, um, singles chart. So it took them a little while for that album to really break out. But once it did, and the funny thing is, the band wanted to actually release another single or two and try to keep expanding upon the popularity of the first album. But Electra Records was like, okay, guys, what do you got next? Of course, they always, you know, the record company always wants to push forward and move on to the next. What are you going to do for us next? Yeah. What have you done and, for me in five minutes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's great. You so, got a hit, but what else you got? <laughs> right. So um, luckily for them though, um, some of the songs that are on Candy O, their second album, were actually already written and they were sort of songs that didn't quite make it onto the first album. And then while they were touring, Rick was a Rick was a very prolific writer. So even when they were on tour, Rick was writing songs. So when it came time to do Candy O, they already had a bunch of songs in the can. So it wasn't right. like they went into the studio and were trying to figure out what are we going to do. Um, they actually did write a couple of new songs in the studio, but they already had some basic tracks. Um, and, and they were playing songs, songs that ended up on Candy O. They were already playing the songs live while they were touring for their first album. So they had already got a pretty good jump start on Candy O. So Candy O came together pretty easily for them. And, you know, it didn't quite have the the oomph that the first album had, you know, like you said, that first album sold what? 6 million copies. I think it went. 
Yeah, it was, uh, it was something ridiculous like that. <laughs> yeah, I think Candio. I think Candio did about three million in sales. Oh boy, you know what a letdown, right? <laughs> well, the sophomore. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's called the sophomore slump, but sophomore efforts are. There's a lot of a lot of pressure, and um, it was it was cool to, to read that one of the songs off of the sophomore album, uh, "Touch and Go." The music video for that was actually partially shot at Wayland Park in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, and. Yeah. Uh, I I, um, I used to go there as a kid to to uh, Wayland Park and and uh, that that's a cool little nugget of information you know in keeping with the Massachusetts vibe and you know very cool yeah it's so weird how um, uh, when I put this book out a lot of people would like say to me I didn't know that these guys that started out in Cleveland you know they're pretty much known as a Boston band right you know right. that's where they were when they broke out so a lot of people had no idea at all about the Cleveland connection. And you know what? I had a lot of people from Cleveland and Ohio get a hold of me and say, thank you. Thank you for letting everybody know that these guys are from Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then of course, you know, you, 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 um, um, I want, you know, touch on Live Aid and, and Drive in that album, uh, the 1984 album. I think that was their third or fourth album, Heartbeat City. Um, but of course, 2018, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you you went out to uh, to cover that and and, and interview people and, and promote, well promote the book, right? That's when the yeah. book came out, twenty eighteen. That's right. I tell you what, um, what an amazing time that was. You know, it's so weird. Um, it's like weird, like I was saying before, how you know me and you were the same kind of guy, and the fact that we're very passionate about music, and not only do we write about, report about, promote music, we love to go see shows. Um, you know, we're fans first. And uh, even though I was going to concerts since the early 80s, I know I'm, I'm aging myself a little bit. I'm a little bit older than you. Um, so even though I was going to concerts throughout the 80s, for some strange reason, I never saw the cars. I don't know why it yeah. didn't happen for me. There's always a few bands out there that you go, why didn't I see them? And the cars are one of them. I never got to see the cars. Uh. So that kind of bummed me out. However, um, when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was in April of 2018, I had a book deal, but the book was not officially out yet. So I had signed the contract with the publisher, um, at Roman and Littlefield is my publisher, and um, I had a deal with them, uh, but the book was still being put together. So when I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the book wasn't out yet. Um, the book didn't come out till November of that year, you know, a few months later. Wow. But when I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, and got tickets to go to that show, they had a media day that weekend. So the actual event where the, where the bands get inducted is on Saturday. And the day before on Friday, they have a media day at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They had radio stations set up remotely. The, the local um, Fox TV, Cleveland affiliate TV station was there. So I got to go to that media event and I got to promote my book before it was even out. And I tell you what a great time that was. Um, uh, I'm sure you know uh, who Eddie Trunk is. Um, he, he has his own syndicated radio show um, on Sirius XM called... Uh, called volume and he was also um what was that vh uh that metal show on vh1 have you ever seen that before 
I don't know if I've I've seen that. No, there's is a that... TV show. There was a, a a metal show called um called that metal show. Well, anyway, Eddie Trunk is a pretty big uh, radio rock and roll personality, and he was set up there to do a radio show, and I got to be on his um XM syndicated radio show called Volume, which is really big for me. And I was watching him when he was doing his um his TV shows. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sitting here with Eddie Trunk. Yeah. I'm actually a guest on Eddie Trunk's That's show. That's cool. It was incredible. I got to do a whole bunch of different radio interviews. I was actually, I actually, the first interview I ever did for the book was a live interview on Cleveland Fox TV. Wow. And I don't think I've ever been that nervous in my entire life. <laughs> I can remember standing on the side with the producer going, okay, you're going to be next, you know, in a couple of minutes, we're going to go to commercial and then you'll go sit down and get the mic. And I can remember sitting there thinking, what in the world am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> did I, did I sign up for this? Oh my God. I was so nervous. It's so funny though. I have a website for the book and I have a media page on the website and it has links to different videos, uh, different interviews I've done. And I actually have the link on my website from that TV interview I did. And I oh, look cool. at that now and it almost looks like a different person. Right. But I it's did like... okay. I didn't swear. I didn't screw up. I didn't do anything <laughs> dumb. Thank God. Um, but that was an incredible experience to be. And you know what else is really amazing about that was I had perfect strangers walking up to me. Like I would do an interview with a radio station and there's people mingling around listening to what you're talking about. And I'd walk away from an interview and I'd have people coming up to me going, you wrote a book about Ben Orr? I got treated so kindly by people in Cleveland. They were like, thank you for writing a book about Ben. How, where is the book? How can I get it? Thankfully, I had a bunch of business cards that I had made up. So I was able to hand out some cards and say, yeah. You know, here's how you can contact me. The book's going to be out in a few months. But I sold a bunch of books that day before the book had even come out. Wow. What an amazing, what an amazing day that was. That's serendipity. Of the, oh, of course. And then the next day, getting to go to the actual ceremony. Um, uh, bon Jovi got elected that night or inducted that night. Uh, the Moody Blues. Which one of my one favorite of my, bands of all me time. Me too. And uh, Dire Straits. Wow. Got the only thing is, the only bummer about that night is um, Mark Knopfler, the leader of Dire Straits, had a little issue with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in general. And I won't get into the details of it, but he elected not to go. Uh. And then, of course, his brother, David, who was in the band also, he left after their first couple albums. Both Knopfler brothers did not go to the event, so the band didn't perform live. That's a so bummer. that was the only kind of bummer because I would have loved to. I, I have seen Dire Straits a couple of times back in the day. Yeah. But the, the surviving members of the band did go and they said, I don't care if they're going or not. I don't care if I get to play or not. I'm going on that stage and I'm accepting my award and I want to thank some people. Oh, yeah. I mean, even for artists who've been in the game for 50 years, like the Moody Blues, Justin Hayward even said, this is this is what us British artists dream of and hope for that we will get this chance to because they, they've done everything i mean i think the moody's are pretty much done they're retired great their drummer Graham edge just turned 80 i mean they're yeah they've been I, i've seen john lodge solo uh and i've seen justin hayward solo those are amazing shows to see them play stuff that the moody's don't typically play um but yeah i mean that's 
even these rock stars who have achieved like the pinnacle of fame and fortune and, and to go to the hall is, is pretty much like, like an athlete making it to their respective hall of fame. Um, Absolutely. So when you went to that, now, do the bands perform in Ohio or do they perform in New York? Like the stuff that we watch is, did you actually goes, get to- It goes back and forth. Like one year, um, everything is done in New York. And then, the, and then the next year they do everything in Cleveland. So it kind of alternates back and forth. And, and luckily, the year the cars got inducted, it was the year for them to be in Cleveland. Wow. So you got to see uh, Ellie Easton, Rick Ocasek, uh, David Robinson, Greg Hawks, and then they had the bass player from Weezer fill in. You got to see that performance? I was there. Oh, man. That was the last I time Ocasek ever played live, right? That it was, was his... the last, yep, the official last performance wow. of the band and Rick as an individual, because obviously, unfortunately, Rick has since passed away as well. But yeah, even though I got to never got to see them in the heyday, and I never got to see Ben with the cars, the next best thing would be to see that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And I was there in the room for that. And you know, I don't want to try to sound creepy, but I really feel I feel like Ben was there. Oh, yeah. Oh. I, I somehow feel like his presence was there. And, you know, I mentioned his son earlier, um, Benjamin. His son is 25 now, I think, in age. Um, his son was there. You know, wow. he didn't go up. He didn't go up on. He's a real private and shy guy, just like his dad. So he didn't go up on the stage to accept the award. But he was, you know, like the bands have tables set up in front of the stage like a VIP area, but his son was able to go and, and represent his dad um, at the Rock Hall. And That's I beautiful. There, I can remember sitting there just thinking, you know, here's this kid from Cleveland and it's all he ever wanted to do. And even though he's not physically here right now, talk about coming full circle and you get inducted into the Rock Hall in your hometown. I mean, doesn't that's get it. much better than that. No, that's beautiful. And and I think that recognition coupled with your book here, I think that's keeping his story alive. And of course, the music, which is going to last forever. But um, it's just a great tribute to just such a talented guy. Um, and I, I think at, at some point he was asked what the highlight was in, in the whole deal. And he said one, one of the instances has to be when we did Live Aid for like a billion people and David Bowie introduced us. <laughs> I mean, that's that's yeah, up there. I, think I read in an article somewhere where Ben said... Like that was the one time in my professional music life where I will readily admit I was pretty damn nervous. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, he pulled it off, man. And, and that version of drive, like I said earlier, that's, that's my favorite cars tune. It always has been even before I knew about your book or anything. Um, I was always drawn to that music video and I thought it was funny. I think these were both in the book that someone remarked that he looked like Rutger Hauer from Blade Runner. And I always thought that I always, I, but, yeah. but, 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 I don't want to say, I'm not saying Rucker Hauer was not, you know, a, a handsome fellow. Of course he was, but what, I forget what the quote was. Maybe a better looking version of, of, uh, of the replicant Roy Batty for Rucker Hauer's character from Blade Runner. And I was like, on right. the cover of your book, man, I, I definitely see that. And I see a little bit of Christopher Walken too. I can see that too. There's a cool, I tell you, if, you know, ice, um, not iciness, but like a cool kind of collected, especially like in the eyes, almost like oh, a half- yeah half smirk, all knowing, kind of like, hey, I know I'm cool, I'm the man, but not in a condescending manner, you know? Yeah, I tell you what, if you do a, a Google search on Rutger Hauer and look for some photos when he was younger. Like Nighthawks? Like 
like oh, way, way before, like way before Blade Runner. Like when he was in his early twenties, he really looks like Ben when he was young. Yeah. So do that sometime. Check out some Rutger Howard photos. I've seen a couple, and he was actually, I don't know how much of one, but I've seen a couple of photos of Rutger Howard like playing a guitar, like oh, sitting really? there with an acoustic. Oh. To see a young Rutger Howard with an instrument in his hand, <laughs> he does resemble Ben. Everyone's he got does, a doppelganger, sure. man. Everyone's got a doppelganger, and, and uh, yeah, no, Blade, oh, yeah. Run, Blade Runner is one of my favorites. The the the, the tears in the in the rain monologue at the end was is. It's very one of the great uh, sci-fi film moments, but uh, um, yeah. yeah. So I guess uh, you know uh, it, they had quite a career. The Cars were technically only a band from '76 to '88, which is which is actually a pretty good shelf life for big. You know how it is. I mean, I can tell you, I've been in several bands. If a band can last two or three years, that's a pretty incredible thing. Um, but they had that core classic lineup for uh, twelve years. You know what right. I think is amazing? Um, even though you're right, if, you, if you're able to, you know, record seven or eight albums and hang around for a decade, you've done pretty good. But I tell you, when you compare it to bands like, you know, like the Rolling Stones, it's not really a long period of time. No. And the, cars, <laughs> the, cars sold, the Cars sold 30 million albums in less than 10 years. That's insane. And, and you know yeah. what? And they... They kind of remind me of the Beatles in a way. And not that I'm saying the cars are as great as the Beatles. I mean, that's ridiculous to say that. You know, nobody compares to the Beatles. But if you think about the Beatles, think about the impact that they had and how today, even today, how impactful they are. The Beatles were a band for six years. That's it. They were a band from like 62 to, to 70. 70 or something yeah. like that but they, they stopped touring they were around for yeah they were around for less time than the cars yeah and think of the body of work that they created well yeah. i kind of think of the cars like that i mean you can turn on the tv today and you can hear you can see a tv commercial that's got cars music in it yeah and they oh. haven't been a band for 25 years they it's broke timeless up in 1988 yeah, their music you know? is just really tight. It has so, a real timeless quality to it. And and you go, I listen, you know, I was listening to some of the um, you know, first three albums and then of course the fourth one. Um, even with, like with headphones, it still sounds so fresh and, and it just it's a very unique, you know, mix like the Elliot's rockabilly kind of guitar, but the the, the synthesizers yeah. and then Rick O'Kasic his vocals. I mean, it, they they just put that they had this mix that I don't think any other band's been able to ever really um, emulate and uh I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that because you know I, I end up I I end up saying this in almost every interview I've done. Like it somehow comes back to this that nobody sounds like the Cars. If you hear the Cars on the radio and there's one of their songs comes on, I mean, if you're familiar with them already, you know it's them. Yeah. They they you know you cannot pigeonhole their sound. They've been called a classic rock band they've been called a new wave band they've been called a mainstream pop band um even though they're not punk when they were playing in their early days at the rat they were mixed in with a bunch of bands there that were playing punk oh totally so they're, they're kind of they're kind of a little bit of all of those things mixed together and then of course you got you know of course you mentioned the great lead guitar sounds and Greg Hawks with his incredible keyboard sounds, but having the two lead vocalists, 
you know, and, and Rick was more of a quirky sounding singer and Ben was more of that smooth, maybe Elvis crooner kind of sounding thing. Cause Elvis was like a, a hero of Ben's when he was young. Um, but they blend all these things together. And I think that what ma- that is what makes them iconic and why they made such a huge imprint um, on the pop culture scene in general is because just, just nobody sounds like them. They're just yeah. so unique onto themselves. And I think that's why, even though they were only together for less than 10 years, why they still have an impact to this day because nobody sounds like the cars and they are just a unique band. Absolutely. Yeah. They were just pure cool, man. They were just, they were just so, <laughs> they were so cool too. I mean, even obviously the eighties, the styles come, come, come in and out and, and the eighties has its own unique signature, but you, you still look at what they were doing with their, um, with their music videos, with their wardrobe, you know, which your book talks about how they were very, uh, you know, Ben especially was very selective and very um, aware of what he was wearing at all times, not even on, not just on stage, but out in his regular life. I mean, he's just a, a well-dressed man and um, they, they had everything, they had everything going for them. So it was like that perfect storm um, of, of yeah. things that came together to, and, and uh, the fact that it really, you know, it, it came out of Boston too, man. It's just, it's just such a cool story. And it, it, it really almost feels like the last of its kind in a lot of ways, you know, obviously Aerosmith was a little before the cars, um, a, another success from Boston, even though I think, I don't know how many were actually, I know Steven Tyler, I think is actually from New Hampshire originally, but um, to see a band like that, get that big from, you know, from those kind of humble origins, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's an inspiring and, and uh, you know, it's a cool story and, and um you know, certainly uh, musicians like that inspired me to become a musician. And, and to this day, I've been uh, playing with my band since 2008. And we just have a lot of fun doing it. And it even seems like when you reach uh, that level, that friggin', you know, super rocket level, it's really, if it's not fun anymore, they don't want to do it. And it sounds like kind of towards the end, it wasn't as much fun for the, for those guys. So that's, that's when they were like, yeah, maybe it's time to, to do something else and go our separate ways. Yeah, you know, I, I um, you know, when the band broke up, um, I've had people who have read the book come to me and say, you know, you really didn't talk too much about the band breakup, and I, I kind of did that on purpose um, because I wanted the book to remain in a positive vibe. I mean, of course, I mean, if a band breaks up, you know, it's not because things are going well. <laughs> you know, a band breaks up, it's because things aren't going too good. Yeah, and, you know. I mean, I dedicate a few pages to the breakup and, sure. you know, but you can't really pinpoint it. And I wasn't there myself. So, you know, those, you know, the old saying, there's two sides to every story. Mm-hmm. In this case, there's probably a thousand sides to the story. You know, there's things that nobody knows, you know, yeah. but them. Yeah. So although I had to talk a little bit about the breakup, you know, simply because it was part of their history. I tried to stay away from the negativity for the most part. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I talked a little bit about the breakup, um, but I tried not to, you know, I just tried not to get into it too much. I wanted, I wanted a positive vibe throughout the book. So that's why I, I didn't get into a lot of detail um, about the breakup, but obviously things towards the end, you know, we talked about Rick being the leader of the band and as time went on, it did sort of become a dictatorship for him. It was a rictatorship. It, yeah. 
I can't. Uh, I, I I just thought of that. I mean, I I've heard that phrase before for the lead character of The Walking Dead, Rick, where he he kind oh, of yeah, be- yeah. it's it's a Rick. T- <laughs> this is not a democracy. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's a dictatorship. <laughs> I guess you could apply yeah. that to the cars too, you know. He's like a Jeff Lynn type figure, like he's in charge. Well, you know, I mean, if I if I was to say a couple quick things about it, you know, um, Rick was always the songwriter, and um, but up until that last album, Door to Door, they always brought in an outside producer, somebody to sort of not take control, but sort of lead the band, you know, and have different ideas, and somebody else participate. Well, door to door, Rick was the producer. So not only was he writing all the songs and bringing all the music into the studio, he was also the producer. By that time, he was also getting tired of touring. Um, yeah. And and you know if I mean and you know this if you if you're the lyricist and writer of all the songs, you own the publishing rights. So Rick was making a lot more money than the rest of the guys in the band. So if you're in a band and you're not writing the songs, not getting the publishing money, how do you make your money? You make your money by touring, going on the road, selling tickets, selling T-shirts and tour books and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, towards the end, not only did Rick have complete control of the publishing, he was didn't want to tour anymore either. Mm. And I don't know if that went over so well with the rest of the guys like, all right, you're already you know, you already make. Not saying they necessarily came right out and said this. I don't know the conversations, but you already got all the publishing rights, and now you're telling us we can't go out and tour, and that created some friction. I mean, that sure. last door-to-door tour, they did like half the shows that they normally do on the previous albums, so it created some friction there. And they and the other guys in the band, I think, felt like you know Rick had really completely taken control of the entire yeah. operation. And yeah. I think that sort of created some, some bad feelings that, you know, my opinion. Sure. And, and, and it's, it's good though that, and, and it's obviously it's sad that, uh, you know, Benjamin wasn't there for the, uh, for the reunion in 2011 with that album. I thought um, I haven't really listened to a lot of that, but the, I guess the one they led with sad song, I think that's, that's, that's a great track. I mean, it's got the vibe it's got, you know, obviously, you know, Ben's not on it, but, and, and I think Rick probably, obviously saying lead on all the tracks on that album. And I think they shared the bass duties and I, you may have even mentioned that in the book, but um, it's, a, it's a strong album. Yeah. There's I mean, a song it's... On there called, there's a song on there called blue tip. After we're done doing this show, go, go Google blue tip. I and will. Listen to that. Yeah. It, it, it's a rocker. And you know what? I think a lot of cars fans um, showing loyalty to Ben, which I understand a lot of cars fans kind of, you know, loyal cars fans kind of say, yeah, it's not the real band. Eh, it's, Ben's not there. How can they do it? And I don't know if a lot of if all the fans really gave it a shot, uh, gave it a you know a true good listen. It really is a good album. It's a strong album for me. And um, the one thing I liked about it is for those people out there who love the cars but didn't want to give that album a chance, it's called Move Like This. The guys in the band specifically said, we're not even going to try to replace Ben. There is no replacing Ben Orr. So right. they didn't even try. They, um, Greg Hawks, the keyboard player, plays some bass on it. He actually used one of Ben's basses. And uh, the, the co-producer of the album with Rick, his name is Jackknife Lee. He was also a bass player. So between him and Greg, they played the bass parts 
and, and of course, Rick did all the singing. But I think that's a nice tribute and a tip of the hat to Ben and saying, you know, Ben, we wish you could be here with us and we love you. We're not even going to attempt to replace you. So right. anybody, any Cars fan who didn't want to give it a chance because just because Ben's not there, they had total respect for Ben. I can't remember the exact words, but even in the liner notes, they say something about Ben. Something like, uh, you know, we know you can't be here with us, but you are here with us. And, they, right. and I thought that was really cool that they didn't even try to replace Ben. They just went in the four of them together and did their thing. So if you're a Cars fan and you haven't really checked out move like this, I suggest you give it a try because it, it really does have some good, some good material on it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to listen to that more. I'm going to and and dive into the, a lot of their lesser known tracks. Obviously, I you know I know uh, you know Drive, Magic, Just What I Needed, uh, you know Best Friends, Girl, all those ones. Uh, you know, good t- let the good good times roll. That's I mean that's a everyone knows that song. Um, but have you have you heard any kind of feedback from the the band members or or, or through the grapevine if if Rick ever read the book or if you know what what they thought about it or well. Um... Without getting into detail, because I, I, I would imagine we're probably starting to run a little short on time, so I don't want to go too long into it. Yeah, this is uh, probably going to be it, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the other two guys in the band, you know, the, who, who declined to be interviewed, um, Elliot and Rick, um, they respectfully declined. Um, Elliot, I went through the proper channels. I went through his, um, his PR people, and um, they, they didn't really give me an explanation. Um, however... When it comes to Rick, I tell you what, I talk about Ben being a private person in the book. Rick takes it to another level. <laughs> he yeah. was a very private guy. And I didn't even get to, I contacted his PR people. They didn't even respond to me wow. to say he declines. So I didn't know what to think. However, I did interview somebody for the book who was a photographer in Boston who was personal friends with Rick. And I interviewed him for the book and he still knew Rick. So he actually went to Rick on my behalf and wow. said, I did an interview for this book about Ben by Joe. Um, he told him everything I asked him to tell him that it's not a tell all book. He's not looking for dirt. Just wants a couple of opinions and hope you participate in the end. You know, this gentleman came back to me and said, Joe, in the end, he doesn't want to do it. He said, but you don't take it personal. I mean, when Ben passed away, Rick was turning down interviews from Rolling Stone magazine to talk about Ben. Right. Never mind a hole in the wall writer like me. You know what I mean? So yeah. he said, don't take it personal. But Rick did say, I give my blessing. I miss and love Ben. I think he deserves to have a book written about him. I'm glad he's doing it. And best of luck. And I hope it does well. I, I'm just going to decline. So it did make me feel good to at least know that even though he wasn't going to participate, that he sort of gave his blessing and said, you know, I love and miss Ben like everyone else does. And I think it's really cool that you're doing this for him. So that made me feel good. So now, as far as the two guys who did participate, Greg Hawks and David Robinson, they were both so cool to me. Um, I did a couple of phone interviews with David Robinson and um, he was just, gave me so many insights and I mean his quotes are all through the book yeah and Greg Hawks I got to meet in person when I interviewed him he was doing a tour with an old 60s band called the Tur- <laughs> called the Turtles oh yeah Flo and Eddie 
right? Flo and Eddie, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to see them in Rutland, Vermont. They were doing a theater show. Oh, so I, I would drove have loved a half hour up the road and <laughs> wow. went, and saw the, went and saw the Turtles. No kidding. And got, to meet, got to meet Greg and his wife backstage, and I did an interview. So this was, of course, a long time ago when I interviewed him. Yeah. After the book came out, I've actually met Greg a couple of times since the book came out. Got him to take a photo holding the book. He really enjoys it. You know what he said to me? He goes, Joe, when this book came out, um, I wasn't really ready to read it because it sort of dawned on me how long my friend and bandmate was gone. And, uh, you know, uh, you don't mean to, but you kind of maybe sort of just kind of put it in the back of your mind. And he said, when your book came out, it's sort of the reality sort of hit me again that, oh, my God, you know, my friend's been gone for over a decade. And so he wasn't even ready to really read it page to, you know, from front to back. But he did tell me, he says, you know what I like to do? I'm sitting around my house and I pick up the book. And he says, I just pick a spot anywhere in the book and open it and start reading a couple of pages. And he says, you interviewed so many people that, you know, obviously I know. And he says, I'll open the book and read a section and go, oh my God, I forgot all about that. Oh, so that's man. how he kind of reads my book. He opens it up to just a, a random spot. And he says, whatever I read, it either makes me laugh or makes me go, oh, I remember him. Or, oh yeah, I forgot about that. So that's how he looks at it. Really cool stuff. And the last thing I'll tell you is when my book came out, I did three book events. I did one here in Bellows Falls, Vermont at the bookstore in the town that I live in, just for you know friends and family that live around me. I went to Cleveland, Ben's hometown, and did a book event there. Oh, my God. We could do a whole other show about what my experience was there. Oh, man. I'm in the lobby with a line of people lined up to, you know, so I can sign their book. Strangers walking up to me going, I love your book. I knew Ben. You know, my grandmother was friends with Ben's uh, mother and uh, his grandmother used to come to my house and here's a photo of me and Ben when I was 10 years old and person after person after person giving me their personal accounts of how they somehow had a connection to Ben. Oh my God, it was such a great night for me to meet all these people. Then after the Cleveland event, I did one more book event in Boston. Of course, obviously where the cars broke out. And David Robinson, the drummer, was kind enough to come to my Boston book event. Oh, that's so I cool. Got to, got to meet him at the event in person. I got to sign a book for him. Um, the room was full of Cars fans who, you know, had been following me for years. I mean, I had put a, a, a Facebook page together for the book five years before it came out. And as fans heard about the book, Cars fans would join my page and just follow me. So a lot of these fans that were following me all, the, all this time came to my book event. So it's a room full of Cars fans getting to meet David Robinson. To this day, I have people sending me messages going, I got to meet David Robinson because of your book and your book event. Thank you. So I can't even begin to tell you. It was almost like a dream. Yeah, it really that's, was. Man, I'm the like, joy. how did this all happen to me? It was just amazing. It was that's really like, truly amazing. That's the kid in you coming out, man. Love the, the what the power of rock and roll. Like when, when when it first hits you in your life, when you're a little boy, yeah. you still have that. It's still there, man. It's still there's moments. You know, obviously life goes on, and and um, 
you have the slog of everyday life and the job and your family and everything you got to deal with but you have being able to have a moment like that man that that is that is really cool that is standing there signing a book for david robinson i was literally thinking to myself and looking at him going i'm standing next to david robinson and signing a book for him and i mean he lives he lived near he lives just on the outskirts of boston so it's kind of close but this guy took the time to come and meet people and oh my god he was taking pictures with fans you know he wasn't like just sitting in the corner trying to hide right he was really he put himself out there and let people meet him and yeah so cool and you know who else came to the book event I interviewed every significant woman in Ben's life. He was married twice. Both his ex-wives I interviewed for the book. They came to the book event. One of his ex-wives lives in Los Angeles, and she flew to Boston to be at my book event. Um, His his solo album, The Lace, he wrote that album with his then-fiance, Diane. She lives in Florida. She flew up from Florida and came to the Boston book event. No and kidding. she made sure she didn't tell me she was coming. I'm signing a book and I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and there she is. Oh. Surprise the crap out of me. <laughs> Man, that must have been, you must have just been on cloud nine. Like just one thing after another, just like, I mean, that's, that's such I a unique. I, flo- I think I floated around in existence <laughs> for like a month after that going. Did that really happen to me? Oh, oh it's magic. <laughs> it's magic. Oh, man. That's the, power, that's the power of rock and roll, man. That's that's beautiful. Well, hey, I, yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time, Joe, to speak with me. And then thank you for for, for this this book. And um, even if you're not a Cars fan, I, I any, anyone who loves music or, or a, a you know story like this should check this book out. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to offer it to my friend who's a huge Cars fan. Um, and, you know, I'm sure he'll be happy to read it. And, uh, you know, it's the book is called Let's Go Benjamin Orr in the Cars. And uh, what's uh, what do you got coming up next? Where, where can people find your you mentioned you got a website that you're kind of bringing back and you got some social media. Where can people find you and support your work? Yeah, I um I have a website. It's not currently up right now. I had to take it down um, to do some maintenance on it, um, but it's called Standing Room Only, and I'm hoping within a month or so it'll be back up. And it's basically an, a mute a music, arts, and entertainment website. Um, I report on local arts and music, and I do national stuff as well. Um, so I have my Standing Room Only. I also have a website for the book for anybody who wants to um, get the book. Or if they want to go to my website and take a look and see if they see if they want the book, um, it's real easy. It's www.benorbook.com. Can't get too much easier than that. So people can go there and there's some couple of anecdote stories there and a few photos that people want to check out. I also have a Facebook page for the book. All you got to do is go to Facebook and plug in the title on the search. Let's go, Benjamin Orr on the cars. I got a Facebook page. Um, I, I post all kinds of pictures there that are photos of Ben that didn't get into the book. Um, so there's all kinds of new stuff that I'm posting there all the time. I also have this thing where I take book selfies from people. So from people from all over the world who have bought my book, will take a photo of them holding the book and they'll send it to me and I'll put it on the page. So oh, I, want nice. you to send, I want you to send me a book selfie. I will. I will do that. Yeah, I will definitely do that. <laughs> Man, so that's I, how I, people I, can get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, it's a, it's a great book, man. And um, there's a lot of cool stuff with that. I want people to read in the book that I didn't ask you about specifically, because there's, 
I want people to read the book and hear the stories, but um, you know, thanks again, Joe. And, and uh, we'll have to have you on again, you know, some other time. Like, I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. And um, you know, I consider myself a real lucky man to uh, be able to tell Ben's story to the world. Um, and, you know, I, I, have a, I have a couple other ideas for my next book. Um, it's going to be music related. Uh, but the only reason I'm saying that is because no matter what I choose to do for my next book, I don't think it can match what the experiences I've had and the people I have met from doing this Ben Orr book. I consider myself a very lucky man being able to tell his story. And I really appreciate yours and everyone's support out there. It's been great talking to you. You too. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, there you go. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Jackman Radio. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.